Father, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word now tonight, Lord, we pray, Father, that you would use it in a mighty way. You are the God of all glory, the God of all grace, and you can do all of your holy will, Lord. You are the God who can do far more abundantly than all that we can ever ask or think. And so we do ask now, Lord, that you would sanctify us through your word. Fill us with your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. I would tell you the page of the Pew Bible, but I don't have a Pew Bible up here. I apologize for that. Ephesians, we're going to consider from Ephesians chapter 3 this evening, verses 14 through 21. And after reading the text, we'll go ahead and uh, just leave our Bibles open because I'm going to be referring to some of the earlier sections of this book as we work through these few verses of Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Hear now the very word of God. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century Baptist preacher, understood prayer or the significance of prayer well when he once said that he would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. That's pretty telling, right, when that comes from the prince of preachers. He would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. Well, we know prayer is a vital part of being a Christian. Through prayer, God ordains to supply us with what we need, and he ordains to use prayer to shape us and to fashion us and to make us more and more into the image of Christ our Lord. It's our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who call prayer a means of grace. Now, we don't call prayer a means of grace, but we understand why they would, don't we? Prayer, as our catechism says, is the most important part of our thankfulness to God. And so it's always a privilege for us to consider the prayers of Scripture to meditate upon them, to, to get a peek into the, uh, the mind of the saints of old as they pray for God's people. And tonight we have that privilege of looking into a prayer of Paul here in this text before us. And so I want to consider with you really just three simple things tonight from this text. Why Paul prays, what Paul prays, and to whom Paul prays. The why of Paul's prayer, 
the what of Paul's prayer, and to whom Paul prays. Paul begins this chapter with the same words that uh, he does here in verse 14. If you look at verse 1, he says, For this reason, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he goes on to what I would describe as a beautiful tangent. A beautiful tangent about him being in chains and how that ought not to discourage these Christians at Ephesus because the Lord is even using his chains to further the gospel ministry. But now here in our section, Paul is right back really to where he was for this reason. I think Paul was trying to get to this prayer here in the beginning. You see, this section here serves as something as a, uh, a transition between the first two chapters and that of the next three chapters. Paul's praying, and so when he says here, for this reason, he's really referring to what he has said in chapters 1 and 2. What is the reason that Paul prays here? Well, it's pretty much what he says there. Let me summarize it for you this way. Paul says in chapters 1 and 2 that before time, God in love, according to the purpose of his will, predestined us to be adopted sons and daughters through the work of Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. And he goes on to say that God decided to bring Jews and Gentiles into one new humanity, one new man, brought together by the mediating power of Jesus Christ, removing the the hostility that existed between those people, and now constituting them together as one new humanity, a new humanity that has access to God as Father. And what this means, he says at the end of chapter 2, is that Gentiles are no longer aliens and foreigners to the covenant promises as they once were, but they are now fellow citizens with God's peoples, members of the very household of God, the family of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, Jesus Christ, who is himself the chief cornerstone, and this structure is being built into a holy temple where God will dwell. It's this beautiful work that Paul has in mind here. This is the reason that Paul now says, for this reason, I bow my knee. Because God is at work. He is doing a work with people who were not his people. He is calling sons and daughters from out of the world and into his marvelous light. And this church at Ephesus is an example of that very work. And you see, this is the stuff that excites Paul, right? Paul was called the the apostle to the Gentiles. And so this ministry and this work is happening right before his eyes. There in Ephesus, you have Jews and Gentiles coming together to worship God beautiful picture that Paul has in his mind. And so he prays for this work. It's on his mind. He knows it needs to be lifted up in prayer. How about us? Do we pray for the ministry of the gospel, the work of the church? That work still continues today, doesn't it? 
It does. It goes on and on. That work that Paul was a foundation-laying builder of continues for some 2,000 years. And that work and ministry has gone across oceans and seas and distant lands, and it has even come and had an impact here, Santee, California, where people are hearing the gospel spread. And people are called out of darkness and again into the marvelous light of God's grace. And this is what was prophesied of old, was it not? Hosea speaks of those who were not my people, I will call my people. Those who I did not love, I will set my love upon. That's why Jesus prayed in his priestly prayer in John 17. I do not ask only for these, but also for those who will believe through their word that they may be one. That's what Paul is just talking about. Jews and Gentiles, one people of God. Let me ask you, aren't you thankful that people prayed for this ministry past 2,000 years? Aren't you thankful that for those who came before, who prayed that the, the, the gospel would reach the pagan people of Europe, the pagan people of America, that it would have an effect upon those hearts, that it would move across the entire globe, and that people would be saved. I certainly am. I know the history of my people, heritage of my people. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Praise God for those who prayed for the ministry and work of the gospel. Because as those now who have benefited from that ministry, we are people who should be thankful. And what is our chief expression of our thankfulness and gratitude? Prayer. More prayer. You see, we are not the Apostle Paul, right? But we have the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so we, like Paul, have a great reason to pray. Why did Paul pray? He prayed because of this ministry and work. Why should we pray? Because we want to see friends, brothers, sisters, cousins, uncles, parents come to a saving knowledge of the gospel. You see, that work continues today, does it not? It most certainly does so Paul says, I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. Now, it's notable that Paul mentions God here as the Father. What this points out to us is that he is indeed our heavenly Father. He is the God who desires to hear our prayers. He's the God who desires to hear us come to him cast ourselves before him, depend upon him. And as his children, we can come to him boldly, boldly before his throne of grace. We are his adopted children. What a beautiful picture that is, isn't it? God is the family, or the, God, the father of the entire, his entire family. He's the God of the saints at Ephesus, He's the God of the saints in Asia Minor. He's the God of the saints at Santee. He's the God of the entire family of God. He's our Heavenly Father. And so, as I said, if He is, then we can come boldly and confidently before Him and ask according to His will. And if we do ask according to His will, 
we can be sure that we will receive everything that we ask for. Now, that doesn't mean we get whatever we want, does it? Notice I said when we ask according to his will. You see, the will of God must always be the controlling factor in our prayers. James says, we have not because we ask not. And then he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. What is the wrong way to ask or pray, according to James? He says, to spend it on your own passions. You see, that's when we pray according to our wills. When we desire something according to our own passions. But when we pray as Jesus prayed, thy will be done then the controlling force in our prayers is God's will. And that's a primary part of prayer, is it not? Is us bowing ourselves before our gracious Heavenly Father and saying, your will be done. You see, when we do that, then prayer becomes more than just us speaking to our Heavenly Father. It becomes a way in which He begins to shape us and fashion us. Charles Spurgeon said this about prayer one time. He said, true prayer is the trading of the heart with God. I thought that was a beautiful way of putting it. True prayer is the trading of the heart with God. Do you want to trade your heart with God? Pray His will be done. And this is why our brothers and sisters in the Presbyterian Church call prayer a means of grace, because God uses it indeed to shape us. We can see that it certainly shaped the life of Paul here. His prayers shaped him. We see that particularly in the second point, which is the what of Paul's prayer. The Bible tells us in chapter 8 of the book of Romans that often we don't know what to pray for and we don't know how to pray. Well, Paul gives us a great example here in this text of what to pray for and how to pray. You see, Paul knows these Christians at Ephesus, and he knows what they need. And so Paul prays really just for one single thing here, and that is that these Christians would be strengthened. Strengthened. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And then again in the second half of verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You see, the Christians at Ephesus would have been under tremendous pressure because of their pagan past. Their past was full of occult practices, witchcraft, magic. It was strongly believed in their day and in their culture that magic practices were a necessary part of life because without them, one was vulnerable to the spirits that controlled every aspect of life. So for this reason, it's important that Paul prays that these Christians at Ephesus be strengthened. So he prays that they would be strengthened. But notice how they were to be strengthened. Notice the source of their strength is none other than the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Praise that they would be strengthened with power from the Holy Spirit. There's no greater source of strength and power for the Christian than the Comforter himself. 
Paul's emphasis here on the Holy Spirit as a source of the power and strength for these Christians would have stood in stark contrast to what they would have been familiar with given their pagan past. You see, again, in that day, people believed that power was something like an impersonal force, kind of like electricity or something that could be manipulated, harnessed, controlled by magic. Power and strength of God, however, comes to us personally through the person, God himself, the comforter, the one that God promises to give to his people. You're probably familiar with the Greek word that is, uh, that, that, that is translated Holy Spirit. You've probably heard it before. It's the word parakletos. Now, I don't often use Greek from the pulpit, but I think it's probably familiar enough to us. It's a term that, depending on the context in which it's used, it's often translated as comforter or counselor or advocate. But really, in the most wooden sense, the most literal sense of the word parakletos can be translated as one who comes alongside to help. That's the Holy Spirit. The one who comes alongside to help. The Spirit is our helper. He comes alongside of us to support us, to strengthen us, to preserve us, to empower us as Christians. Because just like the Christians in Ephesus, we too today need the strength of the Spirit, do we not? Now I think we know that as Christians. We know we need the Spirit and need to pray for the ministry of the Spirit in our lives. But I think as Reformed people, maybe we're a little bit apprehensive when it comes to the Holy Spirit, right? Given all that has been done in the name of the Spirit today, we get a little apprehensive about praying for the work and ministry of the Spirit. Get apprehensive about praying to be filled with the Spirit. We see, Paul, Paul understood the need of the work of the Spirit in the lives of these Christians. Brothers and sisters, we too need to understand we need the Spirit. We need His help. We need His strength, His empowering. So we too are called to pray for the work of the Spirit in our lives. Pray for the work of the Spirit in each of your lives, to pray for the work of the Spirit in the lives of your family and your children, your grandchildren. Pray for the work of the Spirit in the ministry of the church here at Christ URC. Now, it's important to realize what it is that the Spirit uses to strengthen and empower the Christian. Paul says here in verse 16 that the Holy Spirit works according to the riches of God's glory. Now, what is that? What is the the riches of God's glory? Well, the riches of God's glory, as Paul describes them here, is none other than what God has promised to us in Jesus Christ. Notice back with me at chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul says something similar. He says there, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He uses that phrase again in Philippians chapter 4. He says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. See, the riches of his glory is all that he has promised to us as his people in Jesus Christ. It's really what Paul lists in that beautiful list in chapter 1. Our election, our adoption, our redemption, the forgiveness of sins, our inheritance. It's what we summarize 
That's the gospel of salvation. The gospel. That's what the Spirit uses to strengthen the Christian. It's the good news that he uses to give us a a fresh and renewed and strengthened perspective on life so that when things get difficult, and life always gets difficult, does it not? When things get difficult, we can know that we are secure in all that we have in Jesus Christ. Notice further the purpose of this prayer. Verse 17, Paul says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The point, the purpose, the aim of this prayer is that Christ may dwell in the hearts of these Christians. Now you might say, they're Christians. Isn't Christ already dwelling in their hearts? And that's true. But you see, the, the, the crux of what Paul is speaking of here has to do with the word dwelling. This, this word dwelling means to reside somewhere permanently. Think of your home. Just heard one of you guys just recently moved. When you move, you know that you take a home or a house, and then you bring your stuff in, and you fashion that house after yourself, after your family. And that home begins to take on a character of you and your family. Well, the same can be said of Christ dwelling in us. When God strengthens us through His Spirit, He does so that Christ may dwell in us, so that he may shape us, so that he may fashion us more and more into the image of Christ. What Paul is speaking of here is spiritual growth, speaking of Christian maturity, the growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the the purpose of Paul's prayer here, that these Christians would grow in maturity and be shaped and conformed and strengthened in Christ. Now, isn't that our desire Isn't that the desire of each and every Christian? If you're a Christian here tonight, then you know you desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So pray for that. Pray for that work. Pray that the Lord would strengthen you to mature, that he would grant to you the Holy Spirit to shape and fashion your life so that Christ would dwell in your hearts richly. See, prayer is indeed the first step to maturity. Pray to him. Well, Paul continues his prayer in the second half of verse 17 when he says, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is a petition for Christians to, again, be strengthened, but now to be strengthened to understand the unlimited love of Christ. This part of the prayer, again, presupposes what Paul has already said in chapter 1 when he speaks of God in love predestining us for adoptions to himself as sons and daughters. God in love predestined us. See, Paul is not calling for these Christians to be rooted and grounded in love. He knows that they already are. But assuming that they are grounded in the love of Christ, he's praying that they would more fully grasp that limitless nature of the love of Christ. When you think about this, it's pretty uh, astounding that what Paul is praying here. We live in a day where we would probably more likely pray that our love for Christ would increase. A good prayer, a necessary prayer. 
But that's not what Paul prays for here. Paul prays that these Christians would further be able to grasp the incomprehensible love of Christ. You see, Paul realizes and understands that we love because we have first been loved. He realizes that the love of the Christian for God is based and founded upon the love of God in Christ to them. And that's why he prays this. It's just like what Jesus said to those who are forgiven much, and they love much. So let me ask you tonight, do you know how wide, how long, how high, and how deep you have been forgiven? Do you know how wide, how long, how high, and how deep Jesus Christ loves you? I'll tell you, wider than you could ever know. Longer than you could grasp. Higher than the highest star. Deeper than the deepest depths of the ocean. Christ loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. His love will never end because it never had a beginning. Christian, he loves you. He loves you so much that he sacrificially came to this earth gave himself, lived for you sacrificially, and then died sacrificially upon a cross. That's the love of Christ to us. I came across a story that I think begins to scratch the surface a little bit in terms of illustrating the love of Christ to us. A little girl by the name of Liz was suffering from a rare and serious disease. Her only chance of recovery was a blood transfusion from her five-year-old brother who himself had miraculously survived that same disease and developed the antibodies to fight that disease off. Now, the doctors explained the situation to the five-year-old kid and asked him if he'd be willing to give his blood in a transfusion to his sister. Well, he hesitated for a moment And then said, yes, I'll do that. If it will save her, I will give her my blood. As the transfusion progressed, the little boy laid next to his sister with a smile as he saw the color in her cheeks come back. But then as he saw that, his smile began to fade and he asked the doctor, will I begin to die right away? See, this five-year-old boy misunderstood the doctor. He thought he was going to have to give all of his blood to save his sister. This little boy was willing to give his life sacrificially to save his sister. The story begins to illustrate for us the love of Christ. Jesus loves us with an everlasting love, a perfect love. So perfect that God himself gave himself to us. Took on the form of man. Came to this earth, lived and died sacrificially for us and for our sins. And So I ask you again, do you know this love? Do you know this love? Do you you know this love personally? Do you know it beyond just an intellectual assent? 
Do you know it deep down in the recesses of your heart? Do you know how wide, how deep, how, how high the love of Christ is for you? Again, as Reformed people, we tend to be more stoic than emotional, don't we? But you see, we should never be ashamed of expressing how the love of Christ has affected us personally. Because if we know this love, and we know it intellectually, we know it emotionally, we know it spiritually, we know it personally, I pray tonight that you indeed know the love of Christ, and that you too would be strengthened by the Spirit to grasp more and more the wonders of the unlimited, the limitless love of Christ. Now here again, Paul has a purpose in this prayer. He tells us that purpose in the second half of verse 19. He says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is another way of referring to Christian maturity. He uses a similar phrase in chapter 4. There he speaks of gifts being given to the church for the building up of the church. And then he says in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There in chapter 4 he says the fullness of Christ. Here in chapter 3 he says the fullness of God, both of which refer to maturity, Christian maturity. Again, do you want to grow? Do you want to grow in your walk? Do you want to mature in your faith? Meditate upon Christ and His unlimited love for you. I'm sure some of you here today may feel stagnant in your spiritual life. This is a prayer for you. This is a prayer for all of us. However holy we may be, we haven't reached the completion of the work of sanctification. We need to continue to pray. If we're living, these are things that we are called to pray for. To know more fully the wonders of Christ. Well, our last point this evening is to whom Paul prays. The last two verses here make up a doxology. But in this doxology, Paul reveals to us the one to whom he prays. It's a great prayer that Paul prays here, right? A prayer that we would all love to see fulfilled in our lives. It's really a summary of the Christian walk when you think about it, the Christian life. The process of God applying Christ and his benefits to the heart and soul of believer. This is God's will for us. The question is, is this our desire? Is this what we desire? And maybe you say tonight, absolutely, this is my desire. But you do so with a little bit of doubt. You doubt whether the Lord will indeed fulfill a prayer like this in your life. Maybe you're wrestling with sin. Maybe you're struggling with your faith. See, doubt is... Uh, familiar to every Christian, right? But thank be, thanks be to God that Him completing His work is not dependent upon us or the strength of our faith. It's dependent upon Him and who He is. And that's why Paul here bursts forth in this doxology, speaking and teaching who it is that we pray to. 
Who is the one to whom we can bring our prayers, knowing that he is strong enough to shoulder anything that we could ever ask for? Well, it's the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Listen to those words again. He is the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. That's the God to whom Paul prays. That's the God to whom we pray. The one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. I think it's beautiful here how Paul really just piles words upon words here in order to to present a picture of God's power. You see, Paul could have said, God is the one who is able to do what we ask or think. He doesn't say that. Paul could have said that God is the one who is able to do all that we ask or think. He doesn't just say that. He could have said he is the one who can do more than all that we ask or think. Again, he doesn't do that. He could have said he is the one who is far more able to do all that we ask or think. Still not enough for Paul. Paul says God is the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Our God is able, friends. He is absolutely able. He's the God who can do all of his holy will. The God of the impossible. The God who spoke light into existence. The God who created by the power of his word. He's the God who recreates anew by that same power. Nothing is too big. Nothing is too small. Nothing can stand in his way. Nothing can resist his will. Not even sin or death itself. See, God is the one who began a good work in each of us. And he who began a good work will bring that work to completion. You can trust that. You can know that. Just as Paul says here. Because he is indeed the one who has already started that work in each of us. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. That work is already being done and is working out by the power of the Spirit. Just as I said, he who began a good work will bring that work to completion. This is who God is. So like Paul, we too can be encouraged tonight. Paul, who's sitting in prison while writing this letter, was encouraged. We too can be encouraged, not because of who we are, not because of the strength of our faith, because of who he is, because of the one in whom we rest our faith in, the God of all glory, the God of all power, the God of all things. He is our God and Father. I said this is God's will for us, and it indeed is, because he has already started it, but also because this work brings him glory. And that's what Paul speaks of in verse 21. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. That's speaking of us, right? Paul was, was looking down time forever and ever. This work will continue because it brings glory 
to God. This is the ultimate purpose of Paul's prayer. It's the ultimate purpose for which Paul did or did anything. It must be the purpose of our prayers as well. The glory of God. You see, prayer isn't an end to itself. Christian maturity isn't an end to itself. Both must aim and have the purpose of God's glory. That's the reason why we were created. The reason we were made. The reason we gather here tonight to sing and praise Him and to bring glory to His name. We owe that to Him. He is the great God and King. So brothers and sisters, just like Paul, we have a great reason to pray tonight, tomorrow, this week. We have great things to pray for. And we have a great God to whom we lift up our prayers. Let's bow before him now. Lord, you who delights to hear the, pra- the prayers of your children, we do so again tonight, Lord, thanking you for your word and the encouragement of it, but asking you, Lord, as you teach us in your word, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit And by the wonderful news of the gospel, Lord, you would strengthen us to continue to trust in you at all times. Father, we thank you that you are who you are, that you have revealed yourself to us. Continue to be patient with us. Continue to complete the work that you have started. And we'll be sure to give you all the praise and all the glory. For we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.